Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. My name's Tim Tucker, and today I'll be talking to musician, singer, and songwriter Gary Van Syok. Thank you, Tim. And thanks to Jude Kessler for introducing us, as she says. It was very kind of her, and they're so nice of her to, to think of you for this show. Um, I, I ask a couple of questions before we start getting into details of all my guests. The number one question I ask is, how would you rate your level of Beatles fandom on a scale of one to ten? Very interesting question. I've been kicking that around all day. I really don't know what to say to that, except that I, I played on over 55 tracks with John in the producer's chair. So wow. uh, I think that rates me up pretty high. Yeah, I, I'm going to give you an honorary 10 for that. <laughs> for that oh, very fact we don't want to, uh, not mention people you know like the guys that played on double fantasy especially tony levin and of course klaus klaus Vorman, who i met uh, just a few years ago at a beetle festival what a wonderful man and uh, i think those guys are up there but i might have them beat in quantity because uh you know a couple of years there and with the record and him producing Elephant's Memory and him producing the double album with Yoko, Approximately Infinite Universe. 1972 and 1973 were a whirlwind of recording. We practically lived at the record plant in New York and LA, as a matter of fact. So you've preempted my next question, which was I always ask if people have had any encounters with the Beatles. Um, I, and as you've said, you, you played with John extensively, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and various others that we will mention, I'm sure. Um, can you tell me a bit about how that came to be? That would be a fascinating story. Well, Elephant's Memory, I joined in 1971. I had been in a Columbia Records band called Pig Iron, which was quite successful. And I think there was a buzz in New York City in 71 about, you know, Elephant's Memory being on the soundtrack for Midnight Cowboy. They received a gold record for that and Academy Award. Uh, so they were kind of famous before John came to town in 71. But uh, Elephant's Memory pretty much owned New York. We played uh, all the leading clubs, Max's Kansas City and all of the great places in New York. And uh, I think John had done his research about the band. He had kind of uh, investigated us, uh, so to speak. And uh, so to make a long story short, he just showed up at one of our rehearsals one night, Tim. Uh, we didn't know he was coming. Little studio down in the village called Magna Graphics. And uh, the roadies came in and said, uh, John Lennon's out in the, in the waiting room. He wants to come in and jam with you guys. And we kind of dismissed it. I, I thought that they were just pulling our legs, so to speak. And uh, But after about a, a 45 minutes to an hour, they came in and said, listen, John's out there and he wants to come in. So he came in and he was wearing that white suit from Abbey Road and my jaw just dropped. Wow. That it must have been a moment. Mm -hmm. Amazing feeling. Uh, uh, he, they were so nice to us and cordial and... Uh, we jammed for about five hours that night, and which all led up to about four or five in the morning. Hey, we'd like to join your band. And uh, uh, we just looked at each other in disbelief. It was just like a, a dream come true, you know. Uh, 
So after discussing all the details and uh, what label will we be signed to, we're, we're with a label now, how are we going to get out of that and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they had all the answers, you know, they were ready for us. And uh, Apple got us out of our contract with Metro Media Records, like within a week. And uh, we were actually doing full-blown rehearsals within 10 days. I remember going back to my apartment that night on East 84th in New York. And, you know, in the vestibule, you had to ring the buzzer to get in. And I, I, I buzzed my wife and she says, who's there? And I went, it's John Lennon's bass player. And she went, oh, shit, I'm not even dressed. <laughs> she, she thought I had someone with me. It was pretty funny. Yeah, maybe Paul McCartney she was envisaging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you went on with that band uh, behind John to record the Sometime in New York City album, correct? That was the first album that we did with John. Um, but before that, and when I said rehearsing, I meant we were rehearsing. He was called down to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to do the Mike Douglas show. Uh, for those of you that don't know who that is, he was a talk show host. And uh, he did an afternoon talk show around your time there. And uh, it was in Philly. And uh, John did the whole week with uh, all of the guests that he wanted to invite, which included Chuck Berry, for one during the week and we had a whole scene with him there that week it was a lot of fun never forget it you two are, are going to perform for us a little later on the show. and the band is new it's never been on the television it's before it's a band called elephant's memory and uh, we met them last week actually and a local new york group and uh, have you recorded them yet john i uh, haven't recorded with them we've only played with them a few times we're trying to rehearse a few numbers to play here and possibly uh, they'll be performing with us uh, uh, on other dates besides this and this is the first time we've played together and it's oh, very exciting for us and them so you played um in that segment where um chuck berry and john lennon are singing together is that correct exactly uh he was on one day during the week and uh when to get to a chuck berry story when the first day we met chuck john and i were sitting in the dressing room with a couple of the other elephants and Chuck Berry comes through the door and he looked at John and said, where are my friggin' royalties? <laughs> and I thought John was going to collapse. I mean, he, he took it as being Chuck being dead serious. So about for about 30 seconds there, nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, it was very tense. And then all of a sudden Chuck broke out in a big smile and they hugged and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, all was good in uh, Beatle and Chuck Berry land. Yeah, because I, I guess he was referencing that that court case about come together and the opening line being similar to a, a Chuck Berry opening line. Is that right? Exactly. And a, and a couple other things. There were some quite a few publishing details that were left undone at that point. Of course, we're talking 1972 here, early 72. So a lot of that stuff hadn't uh, been resolved yet. As a matter of fact, Chuck Berry, who we went on to work with and were invited to do his bio album with Chess Records, uh, I don't even think Chuck Berry, and I'm pretty sure that he wasn't even a millionaire at that point, which is hard to believe. Yeah. Because so many outgoing 
cases on songs and publishers and people who have ripped them off. What song was it you played with John and Chuck? On the Mike Douglas show, one of the things that Chuck wanted to play was Memphis. He had a version. Well, I guess they both just loved the song. And so the way that went down is we had a, I guess, a four minute run through in the green room about, uh, you know, we'll do it in this key and blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, we got on stage in front of uh, however many two million people or whatever. And Chuck changed the key immediately. Uh, And somewhere in the middle of it, he motioned to to John to play a solo, which he had never asked about in the rehearsal. So our guitar player, Tex Gabriel, just quickly just played a couple little licks and kind of covered for for John at that point. And it was it was quite the moment. I, it, it's kind of hard to pick up when you see the show, but believe you were standing behind, you know, in front of the cameras. It was a couple of tense moments and John thanked us for that after uh, we got back off stage. It could have been a really bad thing for John, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And I know he, because he often talked about his nerves on stage. Got quite nervous at the Madison Square Garden concert in the in the summer of 72 as well. Brewed uh, up the words to uh, come together, which, which he always did in every rehearsal. He managed to flip-flop all the verses or whatever it was. It got to be a funny thing. We rehearsed at the Fillmore East, a uh, famous concert venue in New York, and two weeks prior to the garden show, Madison Square Garden in August. That's coming up, the 50-year anniversary, August 30th. Do you have any specific memories of John? I mean, I'd love to know, obviously our listeners would love to know what how you found him as a character, as a person to work with and to be with. Well, I mean, John, I mean, he's an open book for sure. But, you know, personally, I mean, he he gave me a lot of inspiration. I We came in, first we did the Mike Douglas show, and then we recorded some time in New York City. And uh, but right on the heels of that, we did our own album, the Elephant's Memory album that he produced uh, with John, uh, him producing and Yoko was there as well. Uh, But I I brought in one of my songs one night and uh, I knew John was awfully quiet. And finally, he just came out and said, listen, I really hate this. Is there anything is there anything else you can give us that we can try it just as this song you're bringing in doesn't seem to match up with the elephants uh, the other material and i said uh, well uh, i'll i'll give it a try tonight when i go home and he says just try to go home and write something about something personal to you that means a lot in your life and your past so i went home and wrote a song called wind ridge uh, which is where my grandmother kept me when my mother was working and when I was very young, a little town called Windridge. And, uh, and John ended up loving the song and he ended up picking it as our single. And he actually wrote some piano lines for it and played piano on the track. So to jump ahead, I re-released that, uh, on a recent album that I have released in 2015, I released that, re-released that track from the Apple record because of John playing on it. And uh, it, it means a lot to me personally. And he inspired me to go on and write a whole bunch of tunes for myself that were very personal in nature. 
great. And what, what an inspiration directly from, from John Lennon. Uh, actually, when we recorded the track for real, he sent everybody else in the band home. And it was just John, myself, and Jim Keltner worked on the track for a whole evening at the record plant. It was, it was quite an experience. That really is. And, and and just personally, I mean, um, you you encountered John at a time when he was obviously, um, you know, moving on from the Beatles and was was forging quite a political presence, wasn't he? Both you know culturally and you know in the press and so on. Did did you find his personality as you expected to find it? Was he was he the kind of character you were imagining John Lennon would be? Pretty much. Uh, one of the things was I just went into the recordings thinking that we would stand no chance of meeting Paul or having any interaction with him because particular one particular day, Tim, I, I wrote an article in the village voice, a popular uh, paper in, in the village here in New York city, which was talking about how John and Paul hated each other. And I just thought that was kind of funny because Four hours later, I'm showing up at the record plant and Paul calls on the phone and the whole session stops and John and Paul are yucking it up on the phone for like an hour and a half. He had called in from Scotland and they were talking like a couple of brothers. So that Mm -hmm. kind of set me straight on where that really stood at the time. That was sometime in February of 2000, I'm sorry, 1972. So. Uh, so much for all those articles and stories. That's that's incredible to, to have been around those moments. We won't leave without saying that you've worked with others, including Bo Diddley, Mick Jagger, Stevie Wonder, Jerry Garcia, Neil Sedaka, Keith Moon, Paul Simon. You know, you've had quite a career of of playing with some of the greats of rock and roll and pop music um, and in your own right, too. Well, I think uh, I, I forged that kind of interest as a studio player in New York in 1970 and 71, because that's when I worked with Paul Simon. He was doing a, a songwriting class. So I think my playing, I got a little reputation for playing the song, not being a show, just playing the basic chords, trying to, and usually coming up with a very substantial part on my own, not having to be fed bass lines and, and always some kind of a little ditty at the end. I always managed to come up with something in the fade or something that kind of set me apart maybe from a lot of the other really good players in Manhattan at the time. So I was very fortunate. And uh, like I said, John did his homework and uh, we hit it off because he was a great songwriter, as well as all those other people that you mentioned are all great songwriters first, I think. Did John give you much direction in your bass playing or did he kind of leave it to you to, to play the parts? No direction at all. I, as I, was, I think that's why he hired us. We were all pretty responsible for coming up uh, with our own parts. And uh, no, he didn't ever really give me any direction. Uh, he might chime in on the talk back and say you made a mistake (laughs) but that was rare as well I'm glad to report so no very relaxed very very uh hands-on he would uh he would know exactly what you're playing and uh if you played something good he would compliment you and uh we went on to the next take you kind of got the idea that that may not have been the best as a band performance 
we didn't do a lot of takes. Most of the stuff was uh, like take two, take three. Not a lot of fooling around. As a studio player, I felt I was always I was always best on the first and second takes. So I'm I'm going downhill when we get to take three and four. Uh, you just program to be good real quick. So uh, I think most studio players would tell you that. Most of the songs uh, were crying out for just something basic. Uh, you couldn't get any more basic than sometime in New York City's John Sinclair. Yes, love that track. At some point, you know, he the point where it's, you got to, got to, got to, got to. The first time I heard him running that down with Jim Keltner, I went, oh my God, how am I ever going to get through this? How many times is he going to say, you got to, got to? to is you just had to watch his body language and just feel him out i think we had a vibe thing going on in that track and and some others as well and uh, so i made it through if i give my heart to you i must be sure from the very start that you The song you've chosen to talk about today is If I Fell. Um, now, If I Fell was a uh, uh, an album track, actually, um, on A Hard Day's Night and also featured in the movie. It was recorded on February the 27th, 1964 at Abbey Road in London. Um, and it was released on the Hard Day's Night album in UK on July the 10th, 1964. An album that went to number one straight away and stayed there for 21 weeks which is quite incredible here in the UK. On the US, um, the album is very different. It's a, a half soundtrack, half songs album. That was released on June the 26th, 1964, but the, the song was on there too. And I think in the US as well, it was released as a single on July the 20th as a B-side to And I Love Her. So that's the, those are the facts about If I Fell. But uh, yeah, what made you choose this song, Gary, as your, your favourite Beatles track? Oh, so many reasons, Tim. Uh, I graduated from high school in uh, June of 1964 when that was all hitting and uh, hadn't uh, broken up with my girlfriend yet because I was headed to music school in September. So all that was going down. So before I even knew John, I mean, the lyrics of the song just blew me away. It was the, you know, the ask, you know, asking the new love if she's going to love you more than your old girlfriend. I had a lot of things going on at the time. I'm sure a lot of other people in their uh, teens did as well. And uh, later on, talking to John about the song, I, I really became uh, int more interested in it because uh, I found out from John what an important song that was to him personally, being kind of an answer to, uh, I want to hold your hand. Obviously, that's in the lyrics. And the and uh, I, I could go on to to list a million things, but the the major key issue I later learned about John playing in a major key in my life being another follow up to those that ballad and 
uh, key of A, and this one's in the key of D. Uh, harmonically uh, fooling around with parallel keys, uh, D major, D minor, G minor. I mean, starting a half step above uh, the key and in, in an intro, I don't remember that ever happening or being or being aware of anything that happening. And the song is so crafty harmonically. I mean, start flat and most modulations go up. This one modulates down. I mean, it's just a, a, a litany of, of things going on. Uh, the fact that it has a seven bar bridge as well as most always John is famous for writing the middle eights to a song. But when I went back and, and, and finally doing some Beatle cover songs and, uh, and I had a couple of Beatle shows after John died in 1980, uh, one called Imagine. It was uh, Randy Clark who portrayed uh, John in Beatlemania, the famous Broadway show. Randy and I show out for six months doing a lot of the songs and uh and that's where i really investigated the song because we did the song live and it's just never ceased to amaze me the craftiness of songwriting of that song uh secondary dominance and a whole bunch of stuff that i'd learned in music school john was doing in early 64 just blew my mind yeah i mean the um i mean there's lots to talk about about the um the musicality of it, not least the the intro, which has a sort of some people say it's almost Cole Porterish, the the intro, which as you say starts in sounding like it might be in D flat, right, but then it goes through various changes and then ends up sort of moving into D major. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me understand? Cause I've been in love before and I found that love was more. Just holding hands. Very, very odd at the time, especially. And uh, just that, you know, I can picture him singing that to Ringo in the movie. It just blew me away when I saw that for the first time. And who thought of that? I mean, that's, I mean, besides lyrics, it just, your, your interest just went immediately to John and the nature of the song. And the, that opening line with him singing on on his on his own is just it's just amazing how that set that up. I mean, the song was written by John. We know that it's a purely John Lennon written song. But um, he and Paul take the lead vocals, well, harmony vocals together, the same mic, according to Mark Lewisone, who is um, who has documented all the recording sessions. So they they're both singing very tight harmonies um, in six with Paul on the higher melody note most of the time it's just that i mean you're absolutely right tim but also the way they cross the harmonies i mean paul's high but then he goes low when john's going up it's it's everly brothers uh, all over again you know i mean they all that stuff from the everly's and i think even improved it and there's some lovely um harmonic moments the um the bit uh where the d9 chord as it becomes when he hit, hits on the hurt my pride like her uh and they're singing an e, e and a c note don't hurt my pride like her cause i could that d9 chord i mean just sets up it's almost like you're going to the key of g really uh then they've got G and G minor from the parallel key of G major. I mean, it's just crazy. 
Bedlam Bar Bridge, as I referred to, is uh, harmonically. Uh, that's why I chose it, Jim. That, that G to G minor, he, he sings on uh, Couldn't Stand the Pain and I, it moves to from G to a G minor. That's quite a common technique that John used in quite a few songs, like uh, In My Life and various others. Because I couldn't stand the pain and I would be sad if our new love was in vain. Doo-wop, that was very very famous in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. A lot of the doo-wop guys had that that major chord followed followed by immediately by the minor and uh, but it was more than that even because the way they related it to the D7 that you mentioned the D9 chord. I mean it's almost like a second modulation really. And the fact that they revisited it most bridges happen once. And they, they they set up the the chorus or the the hook the another but this one uh, sat up another verse and then they go back and revisit that D nine and the whole thing for that fabulous ending. Uh, if we had a couple hours, I'd still probably be talking about it. Some people have called this Lennon's first ballad. Um, I was trying to think if there's any earlier songs, but it's certainly um one of his earliest ballad songs. Uh, I talked about. Uh, about that with John uh, in one of our down moments and uh, you couldn't be more right on. I mean, that's one of the, he always talked about it and we tried to get him to, to do the song at Madison Square Garden. We actually did it once in rehearsals, but it was just, since we recorded it, the rehearsals in, uh, as I mentioned before, the Fillmore East in New York city, uh, we could tell that it wasn't just going to be powerful enough live to meet all the criteria of the other songs, like <laughs> instant car, well, 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 and all the other stuff that we we're going to do. It just, it was a bit, came off a bit timid, but John loved it. We did do it in rehearsals. I gave it a faint try of trying to do Paul's part and didn't do it a whole lot of justice. So maybe that's another reason why he didn't choose it. But but thank God he chose Come Together to do it, the live performance. So that made us happy. And it, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say you discussed some of these songs. How did John take it when you asked him about Beatles days? Was he quite open about that? Or did he, you know, reserved about talking about those, those days with you? Not at all. Uh, very forthcoming and... Uh, you know, there was a lot of downtime, you know, doing, we were in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in the, in the studio. I think I've spent like all total, like three and a half months in the studio with John and Yoko. So uh, it was spread out a bit, but uh, the first initial sessions for some time in New York City, we had a lot of downtime and got to talk about stuff like that. And uh yeah, it was definitely, uh, I think he felt like he had finally proved he could write a really good ballad is the way he felt about it. Just the lyric of following up on holding hands, that was just, that was genius. Yeah, and it, I think it might have influenced Paul because we always think of Paul McCartney as more of the ballad writer, but actually John wrote, you know, This Boy, he went on to write um, Yes It Is and Girl and lots of really lovely ballads in his um, in his career, didn't he? I totally agree. I think uh, we'd have to do a real comparison there to see uh, if I had my personal list. Who wrote more great ballads, Paul or John? I don't know. It'd be tough. It'd be 
I mean, Paul, you got to give Paul all his due I mean, for some tremendous ones. But John's right up there with that. He had some real uh, interesting ballads for sure. Did he reveal that in any of your conversations about any other songs? Did he reveal anything that surprised you or, or gave you an insight? I think come together and, uh, you know, imagine we had some good discussion about. And uh, I was kind of very early that how much of a big influence Yoko was with the lyrics to imagine. And uh, that didn't really catch on. I didn't haven't really read a lot about that until the last few years, honestly. She's now getting credit for that, I think. Uh, yeah, I think um, she took uh, a lot of bad press at the time of the Beatles split, didn't she? And Yeah, she was uh, not a lot of fun for her over there. Uh, must have <laughs> a strong woman to to be able to cope with that, yeah. I, I agree, and I, I love her. She's been so good to us. Uh, uh, I'm uh, speaking to you from our wonderful home here in the Pocono Mountains that... Uh, that basically I call it the house that Yoko built. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what more can I, can I say? She's just a very lovely, generous woman. And uh, I will always cherish my time with her. And her double album was the most fun. I think the elephants had with the Lennons was uh, recording her double album with John sitting in the producer's chair, of course. And so, background tracks with with both of them and being in the booth for you know a hot stuffy booth with them and ordering out food and just the whole Lennon vibe was just a lot of fun to be a part of that ride yeah fantastic thank you for sharing those stories um you're not the only one to have chosen this song actually Blaine Harrison I don't know if you know the Mystery Jets but um Blaine Harrison of the Mystery Jets said when I was a kid I grew up with a hard day's night uh, and he says um, he, he just found it's such a beautiful song if I fell weird as well it's got key changes but it wears them lightly and I love the lyric too he says I've been in love before and I found that love was more than holding hands um, as he says love is so difficult to write about but the Beatles always found a little image that worked you know I mean there was had to be that thing going on with the you know, he wrote that in 64. I don't know really, you know, what were the, his marital situation at that time? Like, uh, kind of funny that he would be writing about leaving his love to go for another lover. Uh, I think it was a little early that we can, you know, think about that being Yoko, but, uh, but, but a great, I mean, how great is that to, to bring something like that up and, you know, in a ballad, Instead of just, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, he's got a whole lot of other things going on in those lyrics that a lot of us can totally relate to. Are there any other honourable mentions to, to um, Beatles songs that you would say are among your favourites? I liked a lot of Paul stuff, being a bass player. Let's face it, Tim, we were big, we were big Paul fans. Yeah, yeah. So when I finally got situated with John, I... I, you know, imagine and, and him deciding to let us play Come Together live was such a thrill for me to do a, a Beatles song, a Paul McCartney line and uh, bass line and be able to recreate that at the garden was uh, at the Medicine Square Garden show was huge for me. So that's uh, very high on my list. We go back in the past just once. You might remember this better than I do, actually. Okay, coming about a flat top, that's all I know. One, two, 
Uh, did a lot of songs at the rehearsals that didn't make the show. Uh, we didn't. We played "Dizzy Miss Lizzie" and uh, a couple other Beatles songs. Got to get you into my life. It didn't work without the horns, though. Uh, luckily, later on in later years, a few years back in 2015, uh, 2015, I was invited by Mark Hudson, Ringo's producer to go over and do the International Beatle Festival in Liverpool. And uh, the show was called uh, The Boys Who Knew the Lads. And that was, of course, Mark, Mark Hudson, who had played with Ringo for, I don't know how many albums, nine albums or so. Uh, Earl Slick went over with me uh, on Fantasy. We had uh, the original Wings drummer, Denny Sywell on drums. and. Uh, uh, Joey Mullen from Badfinger. So it was the five of them did that show at the uh, Royal Court Theater in Liverpool in 2015. And uh, so that was a gas talking to all those guys in the rehearsals and uh, that whole week uh, about all their personal experiences with Joey Mullen playing on Imagine and Earl Slick on Double Fantasy and all the Ringo records and the Wings record. I mean, my good heavens, they played a I love for heaven's sakes and stuff. I mean, it was just the, the conversation. Uh, we just couldn't get enough stories out among us when we got together to, uh, that has to be one of the highlights of my whole career doing that show with Mark and uh, the boys who knew the lads. And I'm very thankful to Mark Hudson for inviting me. I only wish somebody had recorded those conversations because, uh, yeah, we'd all love to hear hear those, I'm sure. Well, it was very intense. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to promote right now that you're doing or that you'd like to talk about? We, we can put um, links to any um, releases you have out, for example, in the show notes. Well, I think, Tim, the, the fastest way would just be if your listeners could just look me up on the internet at www.garyvansayok.com, my website. The old school way. I have a store on there where I'm selling my latest uh, CD, the one I mentioned that I put uh, the John song that he played piano on and produced Wind Ridge. There it's called Pop Goes the Elephant, is the name of the uh, CD. Uh, there's a book there, uh, an instructional book that I wrote. You can get Elephant's Memory t-shirts and buttons and all that typical stuff on there that's that's probably the quickest way that people could see all the stuff that i have uh on there in terms of merchandise and this and that it's been really wonderful to talk to you gary thank you so much for spending time with me today and talking about your time with john and uh, your favorite beatles song if i fell tremendous song I, again thanks to jude sutherland kessler for introducing us and uh Let's do it again. Maybe I'll pick another one next year or something. We'll do it again, Tim. So I hope you see.
Thanks for listening to my favourite Beatles song. If you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating as this helps us to reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at My Favourite Beatles Song and Twitter at at My Fave Beatles. See you next time. If I fell in love with you